Hi, and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People, the podcast where I sit down with someone who's lived a truly extraordinary life. My guest in this episode is writer, public speaker, and role model for so many, Stephanie Yeboah. Having been a writer for the past 11 years, she really got people's attention when she wrote a piece called I Found Out the Guy I Was Dating Did It for a Dare. Yep, you heard that correctly. But Stephanie's having the last laugh because she just got herself a book deal. Fatally Ever After is out next month on the 3rd of September and it's all about reframing how we think about our bodies. And she joins me now to tell me more about it. Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) It's really cool uh, to have you here. Um, In the lead up to this episode, I kind of listened to lots of different interviews of you and had a good old stalk of you online. Um, (laughs) And I suppose... Like to look at us both, you would think, well, what actually would we have in common in our lives? You know, we've led different lives, but lots of the things I saw you quoted as saying have been some of my lived experiences as well. Mm. Um, and I feel like you're a known person, but you're not conforming to like traditionally when we see people in the media, they have to conform to a certain brand. Um, and act a certain way to sell product or to sell books. Um, And you have a book deal, so you are commercial, but you you don't seem to be kind of, you don't have any like facade to make money. You just seem to be authentically you. Um, And I think that's quite hard. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's, it's a funny one because I still feel as if I, I think sometimes when you're on social media and you speak to like the same 30 people every day, I kind of have that, echo chamber um Mm -hmm. and so i i constantly forget that there are loads of people listening to things i say and watching what i do which is why sometimes when i go on rants about you know talking about like dating or saying something really gross and sometimes my friends are like steph there are loads of people (laughs) who can see that and i'm like I just like to talk a lot and I, I, I always try to stand up for what is right, regardless of if it is good or bad or whether I'm working with a brand, whatever the case case is, I'm, I'm very strong on my integrity. And so it's not something that I would ever want to cover up for the sake of personal branding, I think. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because you think like when you look at Instagram now, I mean, it's a brilliant thing, particularly for women, because now we're becoming empowered where if we want to work at home, if we want to have families, whatever we want to do, we can still be business women and we can make money on platforms. And if we have activist interests or things we're passionate about, we can also showcase them. But it does mean wearing lots of different hats. And, you know, sometimes as you become more popular and more commercial, you might have people telling you, well, that doesn't align with a certain brand. You can't really have that opinion. If you do, please don't express it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's difficult because, you know, a, a, an inspirational person is also a, a kind of boss and entrepreneur. So you do have to sometimes align with something. But if your whole cause comes from this activism, like you said, you want you want to be true to your message. Is it something that you struggle with the more popular and, and known you've become? Um, I think so. I mean, there, there have been cases where I have um, been asked to work with some brands whose values I don't particularly align with. And I think mm-hmm. when it comes to those kinds of things, I just, because there are so many different avenues that I talk about in regards to um, body politics and social justice issues, I have to be very careful about who I 
choose to work with or who I choose to represent. And, you know, for example, um, one good recent example, I guess, is with Instagram. So Mm -hmm. um, I was supposed to be doing some work with Instagram. Um, However, uh, over the past couple of weeks, there have been instances where they have started, uh, let me throw in an allegedly here, just in case. Um, We don't want that lawsuit. (laughs) Exactly. There have been instances where they have been allegedly uh, censoring and blocking and deleting images of plus size black women um, Mm -hmm. while leaving images of scantily clad slim white women who may be doing the same poses up. And I have a real issue with that because it happened to me this week. And um, Mm -hmm. so it's a case of me now having that discussion with Instagram to say, look, I can't take part in the the work that you want me to do because you are censoring me and women that look like me. And so I have to be very strict with my, um, I don't want to say morals, but I guess the ethos that I try and promote, I always try and make sure that brands are on the same wavelength as me. Cause I think for me personally, you know, I wouldn't feel right, um, taking part in something that I don't at the core believe in or like. Mm. Um, so I think as I've, as my platform has began to, um, increase, I think I've become really good at saying no as well. Mm-hmm. Um, cause back in the day I would have probably said yes to everything. So I could yeah. very favor with brands and things, but now it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm at a position where I'm able to sort of stand my ground. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's a reflection of you're more successful, more comfortable, like, I mean, you know, money-wise, opportunity-wise, or do you think it's a representation of growth and self-esteem? I think it's definitely growth and self-esteem because I, and I think we all do at some point in our lives, suffer with really bad um, imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And so when I was younger and when I started out blogging, I definitely was at a point where I didn't feel as if my writing was good enough or the content I was making was good enough. And so in an effort to prove to myself and others that I could keep up, I found myself saying yes to, you know, brands that I would normally like never work with like so for instance for me I don't really drink but then I started doing some work with like some alcohol brands and mm-hmm. it just didn't fit in with what I was doing at the time and that was because I had such low self-esteem regarding my writing and the quality of my writing mm-hmm. um, but I think definitely as I started to write a lot more on my blog about the issues that are important to me um I started to gain a lot more confidence in that area. Um, yeah. And so it's gotten to a point now where, you know, I, I feel like I'm still on that road to, to, to in terms of like financial stuff. Like I still, mm-hmm. I, I still feel like I'm slowly getting there. I, I don't feel like I've made it in any kind of a way, shape or form at all. Um, <clears throat> but I, I just, it's just a case of sticking to what I feel, um, aligns with me and so because I exist as somebody within so many different intersections that are affected by everyday things I just Mm. have to be really careful you know and go through the vetting process so you know is this brand fat phobic are they colorist are they racist are they this are they that are they sustainable all of these um all of these different things because it can be a minefield out there and exhausting as well 
oh, so exhausting, so exhausting. What social does for us is we, it allows us to connect and, and do all these things that you're talking about. And it allows us to put pressure on brands to change. Um, yes. Cause you know, it kind of like, I feel like, yes, in the past they would have had to tick a small diversity box, a token effort. Whereas if now people are going out there first before the brand and getting a good reaction, getting followers, you know, people are like, we want this, this is what we want. And they're mm-hmm. engaging first. And then the brand jumps in afterwards because they see, oh, it is populist. We never would have taken that risk. Absolutely. So it's, it's, it's kind of reverse now, isn't it? Absolutely. I think there has been Instagram and other social media sites have really brought in this, this um, huge activism change. I think, you know, with the rise of the body positivity community and the uh, body neutrality, fat acceptance communities, all of these communities that promote different body shapes and, and our uniqueness. What we found is that a lot of us are, we're not being able to go in through the front door. So we are creating our own avenues. We're going through the mm-hmm. windows. We're creating our own opportunities um, because of this lack of representation. Um, and so I think brands are really starting to, to see our worth in that see mm-hmm. how hard we are willing to to work and and seeing the engagement and how viral some of these images and and videos are are, are going they're they're, be, they're seeing that there is a huge need for diversity and inclusivity and just uniqueness in the things that they're trying to promote whether it be a product or an idea um and so yeah it's funny how it's kind of like turned on its head now like we are almost doing most of the work for them in regards to, I guess, casting and producing the content. We talked a lot about uh, brands and and almost kind of like the work side, but another side I really wanted to explore with you is, you know, the dating side, Mm. you know, partners. I mean, I'm, I'm married now, but I had a very long journey to, to getting married. And I suppose one of the things that I feel really happy about with this platform and social is that we're normalizing seeing all kinds of people and actually we only really are attracted to what we see all the time and and what is seen as desirable and acceptable and if it's not in our movies and our books and and all our literature and stuff then it is shocking you know for me I would when I would date people they would be shocked by my appearance they would be shocked if they then saw me naked and saw other stuff I'm not used to seeing and it was it was a real difficulty for me and even now I really like being authentic online because then when I meet new people I feel like I've preempted it mm-hmm. and if they have gone and looked at my IG they've seen me at home no makeup they've seen me in different environments and actually that helps me personally from a selfish point of view mm-hmm. um, and I think if I was raising a daughter with a disfigurement like me I would always advise her to put herself out there in that way um yeah do you like what you obviously you've wrote in depth about your dating experiences but for people that haven't read some of your writing mm-hmm. tell me what dating's been like for you Dating has been a cesspit of fuckery for me. <laughs> Great opening line. This is the quote. This is going to be the ad on IG when this goes live. <laughs> it has been absolutely terrible. Oh, I mean, where do I even start? Okay, so... Hmm, so What's I've your status always, now? Oh, single. There has okay. been absolutely no change. I think... Um, 
so I, I've, I was very late to the whole dating thing um, because when I was at school, I was bullied very badly. And so I became a bit of a recluse, um, very, very shy, introverted, didn't speak to anybody. And so I didn't go out, didn't have a social life. Um, bullied by so- who? Um, everyone? Girls, boys? Like what, who... Oh, I was bullied by a gang of five boys who were in the year, in my year and then the year above me. Um, And a lot of that bullying was mostly physical stuff. So it was very much, you know, um, uh, people, uh, what were they doing? They were like uh, throwing stones at me and beating me up and strangling me. Um, I had acid thrown on my neck um, in science. So like my neck is like a different color to the rest of my body mm-hmm. um it was just extremely traumatic and mm-hmm. it almost gave me like a fear of of boys and men because I just had felt at that point that all the guys that had come into my life or that I knew ended up leaving me with some kind of trauma um you know were you supported and- by anyone then what did you did you confide in anyone or Oh no, I didn't tell a soul that I was getting bullied. Um, I, I internalized it definitely. And that led to really self-destructive behavior such as self-harm and um, being diagnosed with depression. And I remember when I was 15, actually, I told, I, it was getting too much. And my mum mm. was away traveling for work. And I remember telling my dad um, uh, that I was getting bullied. And the first thing he said was, well, if you weren't so fat, then you wouldn't have gotten bullied. And I think that is something that has stayed with me my whole life because I remember mm. I was such a daddy's girl. And as soon as I right. started getting bigger, my dad started to get more distant and colder and fat shamey. And mm-hmm. so it's interesting now that I am, I feel very confident in all aspects of my life, but when it comes to men, I just, I can't, I revert back to that 14 year old girl that is desperate mm. for attention. Um, do I, you have a relationship with your dad now? Oh yeah, I do now. Um, I do now. And we've never really chatted about that. It's, I don't know. He's very like typical Aries, just very just argumentative and hard headed. And I just can't be bothered to kind of like Mm -hmm. go down that road. So we're amicable. Um, but in regards to dating, I mean, I had my first ever relationship, uh, sort of my first kiss boyfriend, lost my virginity and relationship at the age of 25. Um, Mm -hmm. and that was my first and only boyfriend. Um, and he ended up, you know, ending the relationship because he thought that I wasn't the right type of plus size for him. Um, what does that mean? So he liked hourglass shaped. He liked the acceptable fat shape. Mm -hmm. So that's the small, small waist, big hips, big boobs, uh, big bum, flat stomach, Um, and ever since then, I think my dating life has kind of just gone from bad to worse. Um, Mm -hmm. so it's ranged from, uh, going on dates with guys and as I approach them, they have said, Oh, sorry, you're you're too fat for me. You're too big for me. I don't think I can continue on this date. Um, that's happened about four times. Um, that's face to face. Face to face, face, like, yeah, where they've been like, I can't, I can't do this. Even though I always deal with that though. I I don't know. There used to be a point where it really used to get to me because I think when you're so used to being rejected for how you look, it definitely can leave a long lasting impact on your self-esteem. And so it went, I went through this period of um, constantly having to rebuild myself back together after suffering another um, rejection. 
Um, mm-hmm. I had worked so hard to get to a point where I could say that I loved my body. I didn't want to go down that rabbit hole of having to change how I looked in order to be found attractive by a man. Um, but there are definitely times when I do think even now, like, is this the reason why, you know, I'm not found attractive by guys? Um, you know, I've, I've been on dates where I found the guy's Twitter and, you know, followed him, but he didn't know that I was following him. And when Mm. he went to the bathroom, I was just scrolling down my Twitter and I saw that he had been live tweeting the whole, the whole date and telling his followers that I was, you know, really fat and unattractive, but he was still going to try and have sex with me anyway, just to see what it's like to have sex with a fat girl. Um, oh my god and yeah I can't believe I this couple- is your lived experience this is like not I can't fathom that this is real yeah it's 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 horrible and so I remember with that one as soon as he came back from the bathroom I showed him you know the tweets and then I left um and you know the did he try you know, and apologize he laughed he laughed it off as if it was a joke and I think that's what kind of made it worse because I think sometimes when you do look different people assume that you don't have feelings or they dehumanize you to the point where they think you know I don't have to I don't owe this person any kind of respect or or care because of how grotesque they look um there was the infamous date where I went on a date a couple of dates with a guy and um didn't hear back from him again afterwards and I just thought okay fine kind of forgot about him after a while and then I received an email um from his friend who went on to tell me that the reason um the reason that I hadn't heard back from the guy was because they had dared him to go on a date with a fat girl um or go on dates with a fat girl and he ended up winning 300 pounds um because he 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 won the bet and yeah, I remember in that time I was just like, is, is this it moving forward? Mm-hmm. Is this all I'm, I'm worth? Um, I've never had, you know, any kind of successful date. And I think sometimes when you add into the include, you know, being plus size is already a thing in itself when it comes to uh, body politics and desirability. But when you then add in my race, Mm-hmm. and the fact that I'm darker skinned it becomes a lot more of a complex issue so that's where fetishize I can never say this word fetishization <laughs> fetishization yeah fetishization <laughs> yeah so that's where that comes in and so when it comes to online dating my my dms are just full of men being disgusting you know about my race and and, and attributing my my fatness and my blackness to stereotypes that they have seen via porn websites and movies. Right. You know, I, apparently I'm aggressive and I'm dominant, um, uh, feral, you know, all of these really horrible stereotypes that a lot of black women and plus size black women, unfortunately, are given. Um, and yes, it's just, it's just a bit of a a bit of a mess my love life it's terrible (laughs) but it yeah but it's interesting because like you telling these stories you know it's so inhumane and it's a horrible side to see to humanity and you know it makes you want to feel like well who who gave these guys this concept that they're so perfect and desirable Mm. um you know and and it's really hard to hear people being treated so cruelly but I suppose this is what makes you extraordinary is that's a dark journey to go on and it could drive lots of different people to lots of different things, but it's driven you to a very successful career. You know, I mean, <laughs> you're very articulate, very intelligent and 
from that date that you just spoke about was you know born the piece that you wrote and now here we are discussing your book that's coming out in September I mean there are people listening to this that probably don't really have that mindset and don't know how to turn those things around and make adversity their triumph you know Mm. how did you do that because there's still emotion there's still rawness to you talking about this you know this is still real and it still feels bad whether you've got a book deal or not yeah definitely um I I wouldn't say that I this might be really bad to admit but I think <laughs> I think a part of it comes from just sheer pettiness. Um mm. so I went through all of these emotions but then afterwards I was like well if he's going to make 300 pounds off of this day I'm going to do the same thing by writing about it. <laughs> so she's that kind of petty. <laughs> oh I was that kind of petty. I was like okay cool we're both going to make some money out of this then. Um and so that's kind of that's kind of how how it started. I think it's it's such an emotional thing to process sort of going through life knowing that the reason that you know you're you're single is because of society's very narrow-minded westernized standard of beauty yeah it's true it's the truth that's the thing because i mean i i've seen it myself like as i healed and became more acceptable i gained more male attention and Mm. it was zero when i had a bright purple face shaved head plastic mask you know it was not just zero but it was also offensive and people saying stuff to me so you know it's I understand when people try to comfort you and say things to build you up but it's kind of not true so it doesn't really build you up because then you can't really trust anyone if everyone's gonna patronize you um and I you know I've had similar dates I remember I went for a date with this guy so I would go through a pattern of only getting approached by people when they were drunk and in like low lighting, dark bars in the evening, because I was kind of acceptable in that environment, like bright blonde hair, slim, and it's Mm. dark and people are drunk. So they couldn't really see anything else. Then you'd swap numbers and the way they would be texting you, you'd know they don't really remember you properly. Yeah. Um, Which was always nerve wracking because it's kind of like, you know, they're going to be also shocked when they actually see you for a daytime lunch date. And I had one guy, we went to a really upmarket like sushi place, sat down and he was all twitchy and sweaty and weird. And I was like, why is he all twitchy? He he don't want to be here. And we just had drinks. But you know, and it's like a place where the drink's £15 for the drink. So we had like the drinks and then they brought the menu out to order the food. We were supposed to be having like lunch together. And he was like, I'm going to go to the loo. And then he left and he never came back. And but I waited ages oh. telling myself, oh, maybe he's got diarrhea or maybe he's like, oh my I don't gosh. know, injecting insulin or something in the lose or something. And I waited and waited. And it was like, I wasn't that established in my career. I didn't have a lot of money. So I was like, oh my God, it's a big drinks bill. I don't even know if my card's going to decline. Oh. And then he just ghosted me. You know, he never texted me explanation of why. And and then the pattern would just repeat all the time. Um like you know say say I'd get into text conversations with me I'd meet out drunk they'd be like what do you do for a living so I would just say oh I work for a charity just admin for a charity and then they say any charity I'd have heard of and I'm like no it's like this small burns charity Katie Piper Foundation and then the guy tips back oh have you ever met Katie and I was like well I am I am that's me and then that was but then that was it. He never, te- and we've been texting for two months every night. Good night. <gasps> good morning. Oh. And then that was it. He just goes to me and never an explanation again. Um, so it really confirmed for me what you're saying of, I don't have low self-esteem, but I know as a fact, 
it is an issue for a lot of people if you yeah. don't look like society's ideal standards of beauty. Absolutely. Also from something else. How did we get here? With Claudia Winkleman and Professor Tanya Byron. In these in-depth one-on-one therapy sessions, we dig deep into personal stories with fascinating and emotional revelations. A passionate, insightful and moving experience with clear outcomes to each episode. He is as anxious about attachment with you as you are with him. Oh, wow. Oh, wow, that's crazy, isn't it? Oh, that's a weird feeling. Wait, so... God, don't you just feel like, whoa, why didn't I know that all along? Listen now in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. One of the things um, I really admire about you um, is that you do something you believe in, that you're passionate about. And I just wondered, you know, you touched on school was a difficult time of bullying, but this kind of career path you've taken in adult life, you know, would you have even known it existed at school? What what did you want to be when you grew up? What were your aspirations? Gosh, I I mean, I I would never... I. I this is an absolute dream. I guess it's, it's, yeah, it's such a dream. I don't even know how to like articulate it. It's such a dream for me because I, I never would have thought I would ever have been on this path. Um, growing up, <laughs> I think coming from a very traditional West African background, um, it was always instilled in me that I had to do something academic. So whether it was business, you know, law, accounting, medicine, those kinds of things. And I went down the route of doing law um, because it was the only thing at the time that I somewhat enjoyed. I didn't really know what I enjoyed, what I didn't. And so I did law for my A-levels and then I studied it at university and, and finished it. And when I finished, I didn't know what I wanted to do because I had to tell my parents, you know, I actually don't want to be a lawyer. And so when I finished uni, I started just doing, you know, random admin bits um, just to make ends meet. So I ended up working in a hospital for four years and it was, you know, I'm not qualified in writing or anything like that. I actually sometimes do find writing quite stressful for me. Um, because sometimes I, and maybe this is the imposter syndrome talking, but sometimes I feel like I'm too informal to be like a proper journalist. And so sometimes when, mm-hmm. I, when I'm trying to write something very serious, it can take me a couple of days because I feel like I then compare myself to other journalists and other writers and who are so eloquent in the words that they use. And I'm here just, you know, using very basic words for things. And, and so sometimes I feel as if I... I don't measure up to the standard, but then when I hear that people have been inspired by my work, it kind of 
lets me know, oh, maybe there is a, you know, maybe there is a talent there. But it's kind of almost a sense of healing because you talk about sharing your vulnerabilities at school um, and actually being attacked for that and being abused and being demoralized. And then you talk about sharing your vulnerabilities or your views or who you are online and each time building up a little bit of trust with the audience because they're giving you a completely different feedback from what the younger you got at school. And it does illustrate that journey of, you know, all the cliches of just be yourself, own it. You know, it's it's all right for an inspirational quote, but then the reality of really doing that is quite risky yeah. um, and it doesn't always go well and it's quite scary. But I suppose your journey illustrates how you found a sense of freedom you know, not overnight, but, but dipping your toe in, gaining trust with people. And even your statement of, oh, I didn't want to do law. The first thought I had was, well, how ironic, because now she defends people. Now she fights for people's <laughs> rights. Now she tries to get justice. Now yeah. she tries to get the truth out there. And, and like you have touched on, a lot of it is a thankless task that doesn't always make you money. And it's for others. It's for the greater good. And like mm. in some aspects, that's what some parts of law are. You know, yeah. why might someone might go into law because they care about that. Exactly. Actually, that's actually the first time I've ever thought about it like that. Um, that is so true. Yeah. So I guess one way Stephanie's or another, law. <laughs> I'm, I've kind of, yeah, come back round to a full circle. Um, yeah. Doing the law, but I, yeah, it's, it's a tough one because I think being vulnerable online already is, it opens you up to so much criticism and, and hate and trolling. And it's, mm it's such a difficult thing to do. But for me, it's, it is freeing because I spent so much of my life inside my head, you know, even like when I was younger, I had an eating disorder, but I felt too embarrassed to tell people because I knew that people's reaction would be, but you're fat, you can't have an eating disorders. Mm -hmm. That's only, that's only reserved for slimmer people, which is a complete lie. Um, and so I even felt embarrassed talking about that. And so but I think it we're only to- just at a place where there's because there's there's always been empathy for anorexia and 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 skeletal yeah. kind of you know we know there's photos of skeletal people and and I think it's yeah. only recently now that people understand you know all types of self harm and emotional eating and addictions and it's a very new conversation don't you think? I think so, but I find it quite yeah I find it quite sad sometimes because I think even with like the eating disorder for me what. I was put on Weight Watchers or I was put on uh, a slimming group, if we're not allowed to say the name. Um, I was put on a, you know, a, a slimming club uh, when I was like 12 and that taught me very disordered eating. So for about three years, I didn't allow myself to eat more than 800 calories. And oh. if I did, I would, I would, if I felt like I'd eaten a lot, I would throw it up. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was normal. And this carried on until I was about 24. Um, I, went out of my way to try and lose as much weight as possible. So that was through restrictive eating, fasting, buying illegal diet pills online, using laxatives. So bad for your body. body. And, but all these things, as I was getting smaller, people were congratulating me on it and they didn't know that I was actually, Mm. yeah. And they didn't know that I was hurting my body. And so when I was getting these rewards from people, it, it, it encouraged me to do it even more. Um, and so, you know, with that, because I exist in a fat body, you don't see the eating disorder. You just see Mm -hmm. somebody that's doing well and, you know, losing weight. And so all of these factors, I think it's so important to talk about in the mainstream because not a lot of people, I feel, you know, are sort so raw with, with their fails. I think with social media, we're so used to, 
documenting our wins and showing the lovely sides of, of, of what society has. But it's so important to also, I think, show the downsides because not only does it, you know, make you more relatable and human, but you never know who you could be helping with one Instagram post. You know, for me, I remember like a week ago or a week or two ago, I uploaded a picture on Instagram about with my inner thighs mm. and that kind of went viral because a lot of like plus size women or women in general who have darker inner thighs mm -hmm. never speak about it because it's seen as something that is so um gross and people think it's unclean when really it's just hyperpigmentation mm -hmm. um and the messages that i got from women saying thank you for being so honest and upfront and raw about you know your you know areas of your body that are darker than the other like it, it's really helped me and made me feel not alone you know at the time i didn't know that that blog post would would go on to like help so many people to me it was just me just showing off that I could do the splits really <laughs> and, uh, it just turned into something completely different which has been really lovely and so there is so much power in showing your vulnerability I think um and it's so freeing especially if you've grown up having everything inside and suppressing mm. Well, well, it's interesting because it, it kind of encapsulates a couple of questions I, I had for you because I thought, well, the book's so much around self-acceptance and really mm. that gives you such a wide readership because whoever we are, we want to work on our self-acceptance. Um, and just the title, Fatally Ever After, and in this interview hearing you use the word fat, it feels like you're, um, you've got ownership, you're assertive, you're, you're sure in your language you're definite in your language. And I wondered if self-acceptance is something you still struggle with because, so say for me, like I felt I was in danger of becoming this poster girl for always being happy and positive and okay with everything, appearance and the past and all these things. And, and that for some people, body positivity is saying, I love what I look like no matter what. And I used to think, well, I don't really fit into that because some days I'm, it's just enough for me to feel neutral and accept it. Yeah. It doesn't mean I feel pretty or I like it. It's just a permanent way I look. So I just have to get on with it. Yeah, of course yeah. there's euphoric moments when I feel attractive and that's great, but it's certainly not every day. My everyday existence is just neutral and like I can get on with it. It's not like celebratory you know flower on my boobs naked swinging off a tree do you know and I, <laughs> and I just wondered like do you practice self-acceptance every day I think do you know what I I try to I know that there is definitely a part of body positivity that is quite um it's quite radical so they're very much you know you have to be happy all the time you have to be happy and I think where that comes from is the fact that being in a fat body is seen as so unacceptable that we don't have any kind of societal privilege at all. Um, you know, especially when you're on the larger end, you are constantly every day subject to criticism from your, from, you know, from your family or friends, from TV, you have to wake up and see, watch on TV, you know, people saying that they find your body grotesque and that they'll never want to look like you. Um, walking in the street, having people taking pictures of you to use them as memes. Um, there was a point where I couldn't really go to restaurants and eat because people would be sneakily taking pictures of me while having their flash on accidentally. Um, people not sitting next to you on public transport. If someone took um, a picture of you like that, would you, what would you do? What do you confront them? Do you pretend it's not happening? What's your what's your Um it's happened a couple of times. So there was one where I was um 
we were outside and there was a guy and a group of mates and they were like, they had like their phone. He had like his phone like quite hidden, but then he took the picture and it went off and I kind of just stared at him and made him feel really uncomfortable until he just left and went to a different table. But um, I'm still not at that point where I feel like I can be that confrontational um, Mm. about it yet. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you just constantly have to be wary and on edge Mm-hmm. especially in public about your appearance because somebody if you're not if you're like if you're not made if you're not wary somebody else will always remind you of how awful they think you look so yeah it's interesting you're talking about you know um where, where we're at and obviously you know where we are at at the moment is like lockdown's easing you know people are trying to go back to this some kind of like pre-corona life and I, and I wanted to read a tweet to you you probably have heard about this already um, it's a tweet from a TV show and it went viral. Um, and it, they were asking the audience, right? And they said, should schools weigh pupils to make sure they shift the extra pounds they put on during lockdown? And there was this thing, like they they were, and, and because again, this conversation around obesity and corona, and this was a genuine question on, on Jeremy Vine's debate yeah. show. Um, I mean, you even look exhausted with me asking you the question, like... <laughs> What do you think? Uh, I retweeted it and I said, are you insane? Are you absolutely insane? How can, how, how on earth can you propose that question to weigh school kids, probably in front of their peers, Mm -hmm. that will open them up to a world of bullying and compare and comparisons and when kids are at that age, look, I, because I remember it, like you are so impressionable you will be told that you look, you know, a certain way. And then the, the lack of eating or the controlled eating can turn obsessive to the point where like me, I restricted myself to 800 calories and did not eat or tried not to eat over that. It's, I think it's so toxic and so harmful to even suggest that kids should start to be aware of their weight at such a, early age but it's the intrusiveness of it Mm -hmm. as well like I just I think it's an absolutely terrible idea and the fact that they even thought of that question to ask I think they kind of knew what they were doing they wanted to go yeah they did but they weren't scared you know because that's where we're at now that actually you know you're talking about the intrusiveness that actually people feel entitled to discuss people like that discuss others and I suppose this is what really kind of reminds us why books like your book is so important and we want it to be number one in the Sunday Times bestseller list in September the dream um you know you do inspire lots of people and and for me like you get you give me hope and being a role model comes with lots of responsibility I wondered who are your role models yeah growing up I I didn't have a role model I didn't see anybody that looked like me uh that like on tv and things like that I didn't have anybody to connect to um I have had and you know I don't mean for this to sound uh arrogant by any means but I've really had to you know rely on myself to be no I get the best version of me um I I've had to kind of do everything by example um however last year I think when I met Lizzo for the first time I burst into tears and I was shaking I remember because I was like 
this is the person that I needed to see growing up. I needed mm. to see somebody like Lizzo, somebody who was so unapologetic in her in her fatness and her blackness. She was she's loud and she she's takes sexy up space. as well. Mm. She's sexy, she's talented, she's hilarious. She is singing and dancing and playing the flute and twerking on stage for two hours every day. Mm-hmm. Like she has made me feel like I could do anything. So mm. I've even started singing again. Like I do it in oh, my in the comfort yeah. of my flat. Yeah. Yeah, I do it. Yeah, I do it in the comfort of my flat. You know, I belt out a Hamilton tune every now and again. But uh, <laughs> um oh, this I is what Hamilton. we should have got on the con on the podcast. This is the content we want. You singing. Oh <laughs> I love a bit of Hamilton. So you know her just doing all of these things and wearing all of these outfits and, you know, even inspiring some of the really big fashion houses to start making plus size that we've never seen anything like that. She's high end. She's very fashionable. You know, her outfits and very fashionable. And she, she is uh, um, an icon to so many young girls. And I'm so happy that there are going to be little young black fat girls growing up, seeing her as, you know, this, this something to aspire to and something to tell them that, you know, you don't have to be what society, you know, the box that society puts you in. You don't have to be like that. Well, it's that that whole like old fashioned saying of you can't be what you don't see. And I suppose for a lot of people, they now see themselves because of her. How did you actually get to meet her? What's the story? Oh, so this is so pathetic. (laughs) So basically I've, I've been a huge fan of hers for, for ages and I was kindly invited um, last year by her record company to come and see her perform in Mayfair. Basically what happened was she was singing uh, Juice, uh, one mm. of her like uh, high, uh, high octane songs. And so everybody was singing and dancing and twerking. And I was in the back just staring at her, not believing that there was this plus size black woman who was doing this. And I burst into tears. And one of her, um, one of the people on her, on her record label sort of saw me just in tears. And she came up to me and she was like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just so overwhelmed with with, like pride. And, you know, this is such a huge moment for plus size black women. Like we've never seen anything like this before. And then she said, um, oh, do you want to meet Lizzo after the show? I'd be like, I can't, no. I'm like, (laughs) my heart's just stopped. I was like, excuse me, what? And then, uh, and then I was able to meet her and I went in just shaking. I was like seeing Santa Claus for the first time. I, I was like shaking and then I saw her and then she was like, hi. And then I just, I, I, I lost it. I cried. I was Aww. like, like ugly crying. And then she talked, and then she told me that she, um, she somehow knew who I was because she'd read that wow. article on the date, yeah. on the date I was on. Right. So she was like, oh, you're the one that wrote that Refinery 29 article. And I was like, the queen knows who I am. Oh my God. <laughs> and uh. it was just one of the best days of my life. Just seeing somebody that, represented all the things that I wanted to do but was too scared to do and seeing mm. that it can be done oh it's it's such an amazing feeling well do you know what I think this is such a lovely thought to end the interview on because when people pick up your book and read it you are going to be that woman to those people and for some people oh, closing that book and finishing it is going to be one of the best days of their life and maybe the beginning of living their life and not just existing so I really hope that you remember that and you know, you are Lizzo to lots of other women. So, 
Oh, wow. What a compliment. (laughs) You are phenomenal. This is why I wanted you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on and being you and just like being, sharing all that with us. Because, you know, I know what it's like sharing yourself. It's hard and it's tiring as well. So it's all for the best, I think, at the end of the day. So thank you so much for for having me on and having these really important (laughs) conversations. I feel like that could be the next book title. It's all for the best. It's all for the best. (laughs) That's a good one, right? (laughs) That's really good, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials.